of the church. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, good morning. Um, many years ago, there was an emperor who was so fond of new clothes that he spent all of his money and time uh, being well-dressed. Kind of like me. <laughs> no, we know that's not true. Um, <clears throat> one day, two swindlers came to town, and they claimed to be weavers <clears throat> who could weave the most magnificent fabrics imaginable. And not only were their colors and patterns uncommonly fine, but their clo- the clothes made of their cloth would become invisible to anyone who was unfit for their office or unusually stupid. Those would be the clothes for me, thought the emperor. If I wore those clothes, then I would be able to tell wise men from fools. He paid the two swindlers a large sum of money to get started right away on making an outfit for him. And they set up two looms and they pretended to weave, although we all know there was nothing on the looms. The emperor sent advisors to check progress and they saw nothing, but they couldn't admit that for fear of being seen as stupid or unfit for their office. So they all brought back glowing reports. Oh, it's wonderful. Such patterns and the most attractive of colors. You will certainly be pleased, your majesty. And when it seemed that they had taken long enough, you know, uh, they pretended to take the cloth off the looms and they made big cuts in the air with their scissors and all that stuff. And the emperor, they, they claimed the emperor's clothes were ready. And the emperor came with his noblemen and the swindlers raised their arms as if to be holding something. They said, these are the trousers, these are the coat, the, you know, this, or this is the coat and this is the mantle. Light as a spider web. One would almost think that he had nothing on when wearing them, but that's what makes them so fine. And all the noblemen agreed, oh yes, yes, of course. Although they actually saw nothing, not one of them. If your majesty will do us the honor of disrobing, we will help you with your new clothes in front of the mirror. And so he, of course, said nothing because he couldn't admit that he didn't see anything, and so he disrobed. And they pretended to put the garments on him, and he looked at himself nervously, knowing that he'd have to go before the city in just a few moments, which he did. And all his subjects gathered there that day knew of the claims that if they couldn't see the clothing, then it meant that they were unfit for their office or they were unusually stupid. So, everyone feigned wonder when the king walked out at the sight of his new clothes uh, as he stepped out stark naked before the crowd. All except one small child who said, but the emperor is not wearing any clothes. (laughs) And the parents tried to silence the child, but damage was done and everyone had to agree. The emperor had no clothes. John Calvin once said, the only uh, haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom, than to follow the Lord wherever He leads. Let this then be the first step to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. Amen. Amen. Right? And I think Jesus reflects that in John chapter 8, verse 29, when he said, The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, right? For I always do what pleases him. 
And we all know that Jesus is the epitome of devotion and of obedience to God the Father. We know that. Every bit of His person, His character, His will, His actions, His thoughts, His feelings, everything about Him directed towards the Father's will 110%, right? And Paul, following Jesus into that obedience, wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I, I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So according to Paul... This isn't pop psychology. This is not just self-help, right? That is a statement of a spiritual reality that we all have to wrestle with. Something's been done in Paul and also in us who have come under Christ's reign. And then jumping to Galatians 5, he reiterates this idea. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. By the way, I know that we are reusing a lot of these passages and verses in the many weeks before this. But if you remember, Martin Luther once preached one sermon three, three Sundays in a row because he felt like people weren't listening. I don't feel like you're not listening, but I think it is helpful to hear this, thing, this stuff pounded into us. But as we listen to those words, we hear that due to this new spiritual reality in Christ, Paul claims that we now have some sort of a power, a power to turn away from negative feelings, destructive sinful patterns, to, to in other words, to crucify them, to kill them off, and then walk in the will of Christ. Today we're going to begin to look at the will, which is our heart or our spirit, and also the character, right? And we're beginning to see the person reflecting Christ's likeness has a thought life that is centered on God. We talked about this last week. And thoughts focused on and guided by His revealed truth and His spirit, right? That their feelings are in line with living under the conditions of love and peace and joy and faith and hope and all of those good things with the emotions that are associated with those conditions being dominant in that person. They can say what Paul has said to us already that I've been crucified with Christ. Now my will and everything about me is dedicated towards Christ's life within me. Coming out of me. (laughs) Right? So in the journey of faith, we realize that the will is dependent on the content of the mind. We've been talking about that for a few weeks now. The thoughts and the feelings which govern the mind. Right? What we think and feel are very much a matter of what we allow ourselves to think and to feel. Our life's direction is very much a matter of the direction of our will, which can be instrumental in giving direction to the future thoughts and feelings of our minds. In the redeemed person, the person that's come under Christ, who's experienced salvation in Christ, the will can become, under the power of God, a creative agent of change in us. We can use our will 
to envision, to imagine, if you want to use that word, to envision a changed life in Christ. What the Scriptures tell us about ourselves. We can use our will to foster a strong intent, an intention to see that change happen. And the, we can set our will to the mean, on the means to get there. And this is why Colossians 2.8 warns us to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. How often does that happen, right? Which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It is hard to keep your focus on Christ and the message of the gospel. And what he's saying there is be careful what you give your mind to, right? Because that leads to what you do or how you live your life. Think about how you think. We like to say it's 6-8, right? Take all of the thoughts in your brain captive to the revealed Word of God and to the message of Jesus Christ. That takes work. That takes effort. That takes thought, doesn't it? And we're not alone in this. We are not at all alone in this. Jesus promised the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 14, He said, and I will ask the Father and He will give you another Advocate to help you and be with you forever the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, right? The world can't accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. For He lives with you and He will be in you. That's a, that's a pretty profound thing, right? And that's why this isn't just self-help, right? It's not just self-help. It's not pop psychology. The spiritual reality is we have... God's own divine spirit living within us, testifying constantly to the message of Christ within us, leading us always back into truth. We can't get away from it. We're shackled to it in a sense, right? It's why 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us we demolish arguments. We can do this. We can demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Visioning what is good, what is right, and what is of God, right? With the intention to follow Him in that and utilizing the means to get there. All the spiritual disciplines of, that God has given us, the, the Word of God, the living Word of God, uh, a prayerful life, uh, walking in step with the Holy Spirit, discipleship relationships, the body of Christ, all that kind of stuff. You know, we have these books. I have, oh, I had one up here. Um, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster, old book. If you want to think about spiritual disciplines, this is a good book. There's probably others. I would imagine other, some of you know of others. Um, but if you want that, there's like four or five, there's five copies up here. I will give them away for free. Amen. Anything, anything like this, I'll just give away for free. I don't care. Because uh, it's not my money either. It's actually all of our money. So I don't want to sound like I'm a really good guy, but... Um, but that, you know, we're speaking about the will there. Now, in speaking about the character, we only have to look uh, at, as far as credit reports and resumes and security deposits and mortgage contracts, right? Because, uh, because character is why we have these documents. Documents like these typically reveal character or they're guarding against the unknown character, right? Character is the inner self as seen through the lens of long-term patterns of behavior. 
Do you pay your bills? Are you kind on a consistent basis, right? Uh, do you keep your promises? Do you show up? Do you, do you show commitment? Do you have addiction issues that get in the way of life and all that kind of stuff? And character, like we said last week, character will reveal itself in the long run. It always does. It's why we can look back on a person's life and pretty much guess how they're going to react in future situations. It's not soothsaying. It's pattern recognition. It's why we said last week you can't corners in spiritual formation. You can't fake true change for long. You just can't do it. You can't do it. A person who's not truly grown in the fruit of goodness will be shown eventually not to be good, even though they've tried so desperately to look good on the outside for so long. It just comes out, right? Characters like steam building in a pot, it will always find the weakest point and come out someplace, you know, revealing itself in the trauma of life to be either good or bad, or nurtured, or neglected, Christ-like or not. But the good news is that character can be changed. Let me say that again. Character can be changed. It can be developed. Although that has much, much, much to do with surrendering negative thoughts, surrendering our sinful lives, surrendering... Our negative feelings which control us, which is a process that we like to call in church the old word of repentance. Right? And repentance is defined as a turning away from one thing and a turning towards something else. An about face, if you want to call it that. Turning away from sin, turning away from disobedience, and turning towards Jesus in obedience. Turning away from those things that made the false promise of giving you life in turning towards Jesus who gives you true life. And the process of crucifying the old self is why just using willpower doesn't work, right? In a humanistic way. This isn't just self-help. It's not behavioral modification. It's not negotiation. It's a killing off, right? A literal work of the Spirit and of God's Word on our hearts. It's God cutting the cancerous material out of our spiritual lives and bringing health and vitality back to where there was once deadness and once atrophy. We've got to do a little bit more internal work than just willing something to happen kind of flippantly. Or maybe better said, we have to allow the Spirit of God work Uh, the Word of God to do their work in us, to do that spiritual heart surgery upon us. We have to recognize the wrongly directed thoughts and feelings of our hearts which lead to wrong behavior and then surrender those things to the cross. Give them to Jesus. Allowing them to be crucified there. You know, crucifixion's an ugly business, right? Nailing something up to a cross killing it off and that is to live by the spirit and to live by the revealed word of god it's confessing once again the sin of adam that i thought i knew best for myself how to live but i didn't i didn't and i don't allowing god to show me the way of true life as he reveals it by his word 
and as He leads by His Spirit. The Word is sort of like the road map, and the Spirit of God is like the trip navigator sitting beside our will as it drives the car of the body, right? Our job is to listen well and to turn the body in the directions in which they guide us. To be obedient in that. That is to live out of Galatians 5. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. To have a single-minded devotion towards God's will, creating in us a Christ-likeness which brings with it a commitment to the good of others. We talked about love last week, right? Producing that which is reflective of Jesus when he said, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is to love your God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, in spiritual formation, we are shooting for the life of Christ. Nothing less than that. The life of Christ produced in us, which all of the law and all of the prophets hang upon It's that intense, it's that important, it's that profound of a change done in us by the Spirit of God and by the living Word. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. That's encouraging, by the way. Paul says it like this in Romans 13, 14. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. When our wills governed, by the healthy, life-giving thoughts and feelings in line with God's will, we are putting on the character of Christ and will naturally react in ways Jesus did. We don't have to conjure it. We don't have to make it up. We will naturally react in ways Jesus did. Doing things pleasing to the Father. Fulfilling Romans 12, where we're called to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And these concepts, by the way, all line up directly with our church's mission, vision, and purpose statements. I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't mention that, right? To follow Jesus, to live as Jesus did, and to manifest Jesus to the world around us, right? Since love and devotion are revealed in emulation and obedience, that's where they're seen, right? Which means to follow and to imitate Jesus in all ways. That's true love and devotion. And to truly believe something, to truly believe in Jesus, you naturally reveal Him to others. So you can't help but to manifest Jesus to others. It's not like forcing it. It just comes out of you. It's Romans 15, 13, right? You overflow as you walk with Him. But that stands in stark contrast to the world's way of character development which is marked really usually only by indifference. They don't think about it. They're not worried about it. Or confusion or duplicity or darkness at best. Character growing out of and feeding upon pride and fear leading to destructive habits, bad character as opposed to good, character enslaved to desire instead of enslaved to truth. Character dictated by feelings instead of love. 
Our will, our heart, our spirit is that which is uniquely us and it sets us apart, right? It makes us different than all the other things in the world. There's something unique about human beings. Our will brings into existence, you know, all things into existence that we can think about, we can imagine, we can bring things into existence, right? It's tied to our imagination. It's tied to the creative nature of God. It reflects Him. We were created in God's image, created to be creators of good. Therefore, the will is something extremely special. It's our ability to consent or not to consent to things of this world. It's the core of our non-physical sort of being. It's our spirit. It's our, it's our heart. It's what God speaks to, right? It's, it's the power to select what we think on and how intently we think on that thing. And from the will, from the heart, from the spirit, the whole self's directed and organized. Your whole life is, is driven. It's the core of us. And character develops from the will since certain things will become habitual and automatic with practice, won't they? And therefore, they become part of our character. Character is revealed in what we, 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 we feel and we do without even thinking about it. Right? It's reaction. It's like the, the, the natural reactions that we have to life. So if my will consents to thinking the worst of everybody around me, I'll operate out of a habitual distrust and fear and anger of all you people, right? And I'll grow into habitual outbursts and cutting words towards you all the time, or at least when I'm, you know, I'm not able to control it. But if the will consents to repentance instead, right? Jesus has the freedom to crucify those things in me, to kill them off, breaking the cycle and bringing change for a more loving, helpful demeanor in me. And doesn't the world need that? I think it does. And the will is so unique. The will is so unique that God won't force it. He won't you know, press it, since to do so would lose precisely that which God intended, intended for it to bring about. And that is a freely chosen character. He wants us to be participants. We have to surrender our will to Jesus. Because freely chosen character is the essence of love and devotion. When I can willingly set my will to follow Him, I'm being loving of Him, which in turn drives me to love others. Surrender communicates trust, doesn't it? A trust in His love, because we know from last week that perfect love drives out all fear. i got nothing to fear in my relationship with Christ. It's the killing off of my pride. It's bringing a humility in me that says the created needs the Creator. Always. The son needs his father. And what we find is that our will gives us our dignity. Someone once said, we're all deserving of death in our sinful nature, right? We're all deserving of death. But we're worthy of grace at the same time. That deserves a second showing, right? We're all deserving of death, but we're worthy of grace at the same time. 
Write that down. Think about that this week. Christ died paying the penalty for sin. But He did that since being created in His image, we are worthy of His grace. We were worth the effort. We're worth the effort that God loves us that much. (laughs) He's given us dignity. Right? He's given us our dignity, remembering the lengths that he went to in order to show us worth, as seen in Hebrews 12, 2. He says, for the joy set before him. It was a joy for Christ to do this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Will is seen and expressed and vehemently guarded in our personal choice, our right to personal choice, right? This is where we get in trouble when we go overseas as Americans, right? Americans like freedom of choice. We guard it strongly. It's why governments and systems which take away human choice, squashing the will, we regard as dehumanizing since they take away the very essence of what it means to be human. The creative will to choose. To make my decisions. But but human will, unredeemed, undirected, and unguided in that which which humanity regards as loving or good, because they have their own definitions, brings about a conflict of wills. It brings about violence sometimes, because we disagree. There's no deciding factor. And it births a lot of great evil in the world. Dallas Willard says in in the book, what is it? Ruin the (laughs) Renovation of the Heart. Sorry. I'm mixing our title with his title. What we call civilization is a smoldering heap of violence. This is like intense comment. Uh, A smoldering heap of violence constantly on the verge of bursting into flame. It does feel that way, doesn't it? Right? That is the true picture of the fallen human will. I agree. I agree. And it's why worldly justice, without the kingdom reign of God, without the message of the gospel reigning over it, worldly justice isn't truly loving and isn't truly good because there's always a requirement to hate the other for your justice to take shape. When the human will is unhinged from the divine as it was in the fall, it's destructive to self and it's destructive to others, even in the things that it tries to do, which on the outside are deemed or considered as good. Its governing condition is one of pride and one of fear and one of malice or one of indifference. As we said last week, God is love And to will to be like God is to grow in true divine love, which is different than the world's definitions. But we must remember, love without truth lies, and truth without love kills. Write that one down too. Love without truth lies, and truth without love kills. A third time. That's a good one, right? Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. Timothy Keller put it this way because he's a little bit more intellectual than me. He said, truth without love is imperious self-righteousness. Love without truth is cowardly self-indulgence. Both are selfish. And he's right. 
God gets to define what being loving is as He reveals it to us firstly by His Word and then allowing that Word to come to life through uh, the interaction of His Spirit as we walk through life situations and relationships. Godly love has at its will, uh, or has its will set on the character of Christ, on, the, on, on God Himself, from which truth and love originate and are found. The only place they are found. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. You ever been to a wedding, right? Love is patient, love is kind. It does not end. Boy, you're so unique using those verses right in your wedding. I'm sorry if you did. I don't mean to criticize. That's what they're perfect verses for a wedding. I'm I, that, was a, that was out of line. Shame on me. But love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not, you don't want to use Proverbs in your wedding. A dog always returns to its vomit. That's not a good... That doesn't work for a wedding, I guess, right? This is a good one, right? Love. <laughs> ah, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But let me say that that is not just romantic poetry to be read at your wedding. Although it's fitting. Love has teeth in the scriptures. It's solid, right? It's solid. Love respectfully and kindly tells the truth even when it doesn't feel too good. One of my best friends, James Cordray, is here today. He has oftentimes told me the truth when it didn't feel good. True love doesn't let another go down a destructive path without proper warning and gentle, caring redirection. True love doesn't just give freedom to do what you, whatever a person wants, even if it's supposed to be their personal choice. It's, it's directed towards the character of Christ and it emulates and it follows Him in love. It allows God to define what is healthy and what is good for everybody in life, for the whole world, because God created the world. When our will is surrendered to God's love, our character is formed into the likeness of Christ. Christ's transforming love challenges the attitudes of my heart, crucifying that which is not of Him and replacing it with that which is. It's not that I lose my uniqueness. It's not that I lose my identity, that I go away, Jesus goes away, and Jesus just appears, right? Rather, I'm found in Christ to be exactly what I was truly created to be in all of my uniqueness. Amen, right? That's a good amen. The problem is, for so long that we've believed the lies, we've believed all the lies about ourselves, about our character, about our will, that the ways in which we've thought or regarded situations, regarded others, or regarded ourselves is simply the way it is and there's no changing it. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. When in reality... The sinful self has been lying to us the whole time. It's had hold of us. And we need to finally shout, the emperor has no clothes. Now you know why I told you the story. To see the naked vision of Satan standing before us, feeding us lies that don't bring life. 
God created us for greater things, more wonderful things, better things. And He put us together as one body, as the church, to reflect His glory in the world. And the sooner we stop going along with cultural groupthink, oh, the king looks so grand, right? Claiming the emperor looks so wonderful in his nakedness, the sooner we can, as individuals and as the church, start to reflect Jesus more grandly ourselves. John Calvin said, the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom than to follow the Lord wherever He leads. Let this then be the first step to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. Whether you like John Calvin or not, that's a good quote. Let us abandon all false kings and let us follow Jesus, the one true king. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I can't even trust my own heart sometimes. I need to go back to God with this thing. But he follows in verse 10 by saying, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their, their, their deeds deserve. We're talking beyond salvation. We're talking spiritual formation now. The, the work of salvation is totally a work of God. But, you know, this whole spiritual formation process, we have some work to do here, right? Evangelicals have long been too afraid of that word deed. That four-letter word, deed. Not wanting to get caught up in a works-based righteousness. But that's not what we're talking about. The truth is... God didn't go to all the extent of dying on that cross for you and rising from the grave for you just to make you more smarter, to know more. And then just to go do what you want. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You can memorize that when He created us, us for good works to do something with all this. He meant for our hearts to be changed and lead us into loving action. 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid His life down for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is Christ-like character originating from the changed heart. An act of powerful, divine love originating in me, of God, originating from, from a person of God who, who has already changed by Christ, who's already been changed by Jesus. And then it continues, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we, we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. So if we stand before Him and we feel that conviction that my heart hasn't really fully been, or my will hasn't fully been surrendered to Him, the promise is that He's greater than all that. He's going to hound me. He's going to take me there, Right? Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we keep His commandments and do what what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, 
and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And that's a pretty good place to end today. The person whose will has been surrendered, given over to Christ, allowing him to regenerate that dead heart is being realigned with the heart of God. Action always follows a changed heart. Behavior then becomes absolutely, totally glorifying to God instead of duplicitous and secret and shameful or confused at best. It's the person who walks with God by keeping in step with the Spirit. Surrendered will leading to Christ-like character. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You that Your Spirit is here with us right now. We thank You that You are alive and walking with us right now. We thank You that even though some of us may not feel that or see that right now in our lives, that it is still a truth, it is still a reality, that You are taking us to completion, that You are working in us, that you're drawing us out. Father, I pray that we would come before your cross and surrender all things that stand in the way of our relationship with you. Let us lay down our will. Let us do that in absolute trust and joy that we have a God who created us for greater and better things and loves us enough to die for us, conquer sin and death, and to walk this out with us. You didn't leave us alone. You filled us with your Spirit And you've done all this work to give us exactly what we need to walk this out. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we ask that you would remind us of these things. And that if there's something that that is stuck in our craw, there's something that that is keeping us, tripping us up, I pray that we would prayerfully drop that right now that we would take it to the cross right now, hand it to your Holy Spirit, and have Him crucify that, nail it to the cross, and get rid of it. And we remember that that night that you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it, and you said, this is my body broken for you, and you took the wine, and you said, this is my blood shed for you, and do this in remembrance of me. Whenever you gather together like this and we just thank you Father that you have given us these things remind us and to keep us moving forward we may be perplexed and stressed out and all that stuff but we are not destroyed you fill us up and I pray that we would start to see the joy and the life and the hope and the faith that comes from that just overtake and dominate our lives, pushing all else out that is not of you.